Welcome to Radio Survivor. We're here for the love of radio and sound. My name is Paul Reismandel. Hello, everybody. Eric Klein here. And hi, I'm Jennifer Waits. And uh, we're here together to, to kind of catch up a little bit. We're, we're really approaching the end of uh, summer 2020, uh, an unprecedented sort of year. We don't have to get too much into why. I think everybody knows. But there's a lot of uh, happenings in, in the radio world uh, that we haven't quite had a chance to share with you here on the show. And we thought it was a good good time um, for the three of us to uh, sit down together and go over some of these happenings and and think a little bit about uh, what the state of radio is here at the end of the coronavirus summer and yeah, Paul, where things may be radio, going in the fall. When you say radio on Radio Survivor, it's important for listeners to know that we mean all of the radio. We mean radio on the internet. We mean radio time shifted. Uh, some people call those things podcastings and streamings. Uh, that's all radio to us here on the program. Right, exactly. So you know, we're 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 looking very broadly at it. Although our hearts definitely sit with uh, with terrestrial radio, with uh, conventional broadcast uh, radio as well. And really, I think uh, some of the saddest news that we've had uh, in in radio this summer is the passing of Lorenzo Milam, who is a dear figure to people in community radio, uh, had a really pivotal role in kind of spreading the gospel, if you will, of community radio uh, in the 1960s and and 1970s. Uh, He passed on uh, July 19th, at the time uh, living in Mexico. Um, And he may be known to some folks uh, as the author of the book Sex and Broadcasting, subtitled A Handbook on Starting a Radio Station for the Community. And it's kind of an idiosyncratic journey uh through what independent media looked like in the 1960s and 70s and the and uh the trials and tribulations of of both operating and starting community radio stations that were open to the public in a way that that frankly radio stations really hadn't been much uh prior to the time inspired by kind of the examples of the Pacifica Foundation radio stations KPFA in Berkeley California KPFK in in Los Angeles but taking an even I think different tact a little more open door a little more uh community access public access style um than the Pacifica stations which were certainly very open but tended to have a bit more of a public service model uh, and, you know, a little bit more professionalized, whereas the model that that Lorenzo Milam would, would kind of propagate is more amateurish, really. And, and by amateurish, I don't mean uh, not good. I don't mean it to mean this is uh, something which is lesser than professional so much as it truly in the, in the fundamental sense of it, amateur, meaning folks who are not paid for their time, people who are volunteering their time, people who are doing it um, out of a love for the medium, a love for the topic that they might cover, the music they might might share, uh, you know, an absolute uh, love for making making radio. Um, and so Lorenzo is known for starting stations like Seattle's Crab, K-R-A-B-F-M, uh, in 1961, which was followed up uh, a few years later by KBOO, K-B-O-O, here in Portland, Oregon, which in its earliest years, and, and KBOO celebrated its 50th uh, year on the air two years ago in 2018, um, but in its earliest years was actually kind of a repeater 
of crab uh, up in Seattle before uh, Kebu got its own legs and became a station in its own right. And and to that extent, uh, crab disappeared in the 1980s, went off the air, whereas Kebu has stayed on the air the entire time. And, and persists to this moment. Yes, yeah, and Kebu is on the air right now. And then he, you know, eventually these stations uh, that uh, Lorenzo would help start were known as the Crab Nebula. You know, sort of uh, from that namesake first station in Seattle, KRAB, um, a, a, an entire nebula of of stations. And and really though, these stations are pivotal in the development of community radio because they really set the example which most stations that we think of as community radio ended up following. Uh, stations which were very much more of the open access style, a public access style, um, and typically democratically run from the inside, right? By some shape or measure, uh, many of the decisions and the operating decisions would be made by the volunteers and often by uh, member contributors to the stations. Uh, and it's not as if uh, such types of, of democratic governance weren't embedded in, in kind of stations before that, but kind of in tune with the times of the late 60s and early 70s, uh, where there were many impulses to move back to something that was a more of a grassroots type of democracy. Um, these stations often had had more uh, direct involvement in decision making processes. And consequently, as many of us have seen in the in the 50 or so years since, sometimes more chaos and sometimes uh, more controversies and and more uh, disruptions uh, that come from the the fact that, frankly, many of us are not taught in school really how to operate in an actual kind of functioning democracy and don't really always know how to how to um, go into a station and know how to. Uh, work out our differences in, in mechanisms beyond maybe raising our hands in a vote. Uh, but putting that aside, it, it's really a tremendous legacy. I mean, certainly Lorenzo Malam is is not the the only person to start radio stations and not the only person to be involved in community radio. But the way in which he he documented it um, in a way that was accessible through the through a book and and, and essays. And, and the fact that, that he uh, alone touched so many stations in his journey is certainly remarkable and, and, and the loss I know, I know is felt. And those, and those books were really sex and broadcasting that you referenced. It started out as a pamphlet that, that they sold for $1. And then eventually there was another version that was $2 and it expanded into a, a book-sized tome. And I know that there are contemporary folks who've started community radio stations in the past five or 10 years who have relied on sex and broadcasting as sort of their Bible and something that they refer to over and over again when they were starting a station and as they're running a station. So so that legacy has lived on even um, as this mentor, uh, in this sort of mentor role, even long past the time when Lorenzo Milam was starting up radio stations. And, and really... Uh you need to look at the book <laughs> to get a sense of it. Uh, it is not merely words on pages, but illustrations. It's the way in which the information is presented. It, it's much more wild and woolly than kind of an instruction manual, right? It's, it's not a, um, it's not a dry tome. There's a lot of fun anecdotes along with practical instruction and lists, but it, in some ways it, it, it seems very contemporary as a result, 
right? In in our in, in how now we're we're accustomed to to digesting information in listicles and in all sorts of different types of infographics. All of these exist in sex and broadcasting in some shape or form. It's the kind of book you can actually pick up and index and kind of go to a section to take in something, even though it also you benefit from reading it cover to cover. He's a Lorenzo Milam is a very entertaining writer. That is that is for sure. Like anybody who even has received emails from him knows, you know, he's he's very very entertaining and witty and sometimes. Um, sort of uh irreverent <laughs> uh you've you've received emails from him then yes so um i i first got in touch with him through our colleague matthew lazar who had communicated with lorenzo milam probably initially when he was writing about the history of of radio at pacifica so um, I was put in touch with Lorenzo Milam because we share a college radio past in common. And and that's something that I wrote about recently because I feel like um, a lot of people know about Lorenzo Milam and his history in starting up so many community radio stations, but very little has been written about his college radio past. So, you know, he actually got his start in college radio and he worked at his college radio station at Haverford College, and that's where I also got my start in college radio, and obviously decades apart. But I was intrigued by that and did a lot of work, or well, I'm doing ongoing work in um, writing about the history of radio at Haverford College. So under the auspices of that, I got in touch with Lorenzo to hear his tales from working at WHRC at Haverford College in the 1950s. And and I'd sort of forgotten that he actually did college radio prior to that. Um, Lorenzo um, started college at Yale, and when he was there, he participated in their student radio station, WYBC, and that was from 1951 to 1952. And it was a campus-only AM carrier current station, but very buttoned up. It it had, I think it was one of the most popular activities on campus and had a very rigorous training program and even their own terminology for it. So if you were training, you were called a healer. And, um, and there a healer. Even, uh, a healer. As, how do you spell that? Is it H E A L E R? As in no, no, no. H- okay, H E E L E R. Okay. And I I dug in dug into the archives and and found that when he was there, um, on the schedule on certain Saturdays, they had a part in the schedule called Healer's Hack Time, which sounds like a very contemporary term. But Healer's Hack Time uh, was apparently a, an entire day where the the folks who were in training at the radio station took over the programming. And on a few of the days that I saw it on the schedule, it was a Saturday where there was a football game. So the Healers would run all sorts of programming, you know, including um, helping out with the football broadcast. So, hmm. so he participated at, at WYBC where – you know, he trained in all aspects of the station. And apparently, um, after this apprenticeship period, 
the healers were competing for spots on the air. And I'm not entirely certain if if after that training period, if Lorenzo got a spot on WYBC, um, I didn't see him in their yearbook photo. Uh, so, so who knows? He may have only trained there, and and then he left. He left Yale after a year, went back home to Florida, and worked at a commercial radio station. So, that training in college radio led to work in commercial radio. Um, and then he was stricken by polio and, and, you know, that, that took, that took him on another path. And so he wasn't able to return to college until he arrived at Haverford in 1955 and participate in WHRC. And so this is where where my story intersects with Lorenzo's uh, when I asked him about his time at the Haverford radio station between 1955 and 1957 he described it as being you know one of the most ramshackle stations he'd ever been at and and he told me he'd worked at you know some terrible stations in Florida but that you know the college station at Haverford really took the cake and talked about you know sort of the the horrible dark stairway that he had to use to get there. And, and and now when you think about him, you know, he walked on crutches. So imagining him and I've been on this stairway, um, the station's actually in a different place was in a different place when I was in college, but I, I revisited the site where it used to be where he, when he was a DJ there and it was in the attic of a building and on these ridiculously narrow stairs leading up to the attic. So it's hard to imagine him going up there, uh, potentially hauling in his own records for his show. And that's because played. of the polio you're, you're imagining that it was difficult yeah. for him. Yeah. Yeah. Cause he had any, he, he was managing crutches. Um, he okay. walked on crutches. So I can understand him, you know, describing the miserable place. And, and he talked about how the, the turntables, you know, didn't spin at the right speed. And so what you're describing for me, Jennifer (laughs) sounds a lot like community radio stations. I've been in to some extent, especially stations that are born in that era of the, of the late sixties through to maybe the late seventies to early eighties. And, and, and not, you know, and most of them, you know, that I've been in certainly they're, they're actually functional. Right. I mean, but that when you have, Dozens of people come through in any given day, if not, you know, hundreds in a week and equipment just naturally just goes through wear and tear. And often they've been built out, you know, by with volunteer labor using, uh, you know, often donated or recycled materials. Right. They have a kind of uh, ramshackle look, even if it all has, you know, full integrity and meets <laughs> building codes, you know, and I can just think of so many stations and I don't want to call anybody out for it, but that they kind of have that 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 sense to them and that feel to them even if they are build out some more modern uh accoutrement uh, inside and and i think you know when i hearing you recount these experiences it sounds to me as if the uh the haverford radio experience was potentially the most um uh influential on lorenzo uh milam uh, compared to his Yale or commercial radio experience, because isn't it the case, uh, Jennifer, that that also the Haverford station was was comparatively freeform for its time when he was there? Exactly. Yeah, it was it was student run. Uh, college radio at Haverford was always student run, and you know he described it to me. Well, and this is a quote from him: 
It was generalized anarchy. There was no one to supervise things, which was okay, because it meant, you know, basically that he could play whatever he wanted. So, so yeah, um, I think Haverford had to have been incredibly influential. It's also a Quaker college, um, so that the pacifist there are many aspects of Quakerism that, um, that I can see as being an influence on him, you know, the pacifism, but also things were decided at Haverford by students, um, uh, and using consensus. So, uh, we would make decisions on campus in these meetings where everybody would have to agree to something. You would have to achieve consensus. So I have to think that all of that had a big impact on, on some of his ideas about what a community radio station could be like. Yeah, these are both really influential ideas in the history of community radio, especially, you know, and even if we look to Pacifica, right, which is the the founding network of community radio in the United States for all intents and purposes, and the first station KPFA, Pacifica comes from pacifism. You know, the, the, the founders of KPFA were pacifists and believed deeply, and they had been conscientious objectors during World War II. Um, and this, I know this is also a through line, maybe not, uh, doesn't mean everyone involved in stations to a T, you know, in the 1960s and 70s had explicit pacifist uh, leanings, but the, the, the very spirit of, of pacifism with, of course, the background of the Vietnam War through much of this. Uh, was really important and and for these stations to to be able to give voice to the anti war message uh in a way that I think you know for those of us living here in in twenty twenty it's hard for us to to sometimes realize how little anti war message was actually on uh, the in the media because we have these images of you know that have been distilled where we see we see film of protests we 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 see maybe the repeated moments uh when Walter Cronkite broke on the CBS evening news and said something uh that was critical of the war but you know what what gets lost in the mix is that those are are, are tiny snippets that have been distilled and kind of get sort of reinforced in our memories, but that most of the time uh, there was not a a really strong anti-war and especially not pacifist message in our mainstream media, but it would have been very present and, and importantly present on a community radio station. And certainly that influence goes back to uh, Lorenzo Milam. And once again, uh, you know, we're talking about the life of Lorenzo Milam who passed on July 19th. Uh, he has been called in times the Johnny Appleseed of community radio because he, he for a time traveled from place to place, helping to start stations and, and actually helping to, to fund them, uh, with some money that he had to actually fund their starting. And, uh, as we, as we, uh, kind of review his life and, and, and note, Note the loss, really, uh, to community radio, even if he had not been much involved, really, in, in this century. Um, he continued to write and continued to publish online, and his writings are, are still available. And you can certainly learn more. Uh, we'll have links to uh, sort of our obituaries um, of, of Lorenzo Milam and uh, links to some pieces that have been written about him, including, uh, Jennifer, your recounting of his college radio days that you were able to learn about. Uh, through your email interviews with Lorenzo. You can go to radiosurvivor.com slash podcast. Yeah, I might add there was a there was a wake for Lorenzo that that happened that was attended by community radio a virtual luminaries. Wake, right? A virtual wake. Um, 
with yeah community radio folks from all over the world participated in that and and i believe that's archived and if it is we'll include a link to that as well yeah i unfortunately was not able to make it due to due to work uh due to work obligations but um were you able to go jennifer i was yeah it was it was great it was very interesting and um and i and i hadn't really realized that um one of his colleagues in starting up crab was was a friend of his from haverford so hmm. He had some interesting Haverford, additional Haverford tales. They they had worked together on the school newspaper, including doing April Fool's issues. So, you know, for those that, um, you know, have read Lorenzo's writing and know of his, you know, irreverent spirit, that all makes, it makes so much sense to think he was, that he took part in April Fool's issues. And he also faked his own death a number of times. So there are people who are hoping that that's what happened this time, <laughs> that perhaps Lorenzo is simply listening to all of us, you know, telling tales about his legacy and, and enjoying every minute of it. Hmm. If only that were the case. Well, uh, rest in peace, Lorenzo Milam. Uh, certainly uh, community radio is is a very different thing, I think, because of your, your influence. And I'll mark that as a very positive thing for uh for the world uh that that this this person uh graced us uh with his presence and you are listening to radio survivor we're here for the love of radio and sound my name is paul Spindel. you just heard the voice of jennifer waits and also joining us is eric klein and we're here uh today kind of looking over some of the bigger stories in radio and radio writ large including podcasting streaming audio media of all kinds that we haven't really had a chance to discuss here on the show so far this summer. It's been so chock full of great interviews that we've wanted to bring you that we haven't had a, a real moment to catch our breath. So we wanted to take this opportunity to uh, to share some of this with you. Not only that, Paul, but we missed our chance to celebrate our five years on the air with this uh, radio program. With My this goodness, this yeah. The, the beginning of the summer would have marked... Uh, our five-year anniversary of starting the project of broadcasting Radio Survivor. Yeah, June Happy of 2020. Anniversary. It's 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 tremendous. It, yeah, we celebrate five years uh, with this podcast and 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 radio show, which is now heard on dozens of community college and college stations around North America and Ireland. Um, in addition to obviously being a podcast, and we've been uh, creating a website, Radio Survivor, for eleven years this year. So. Uh, amazing how time flies and you know some radio being kind of our founding premise we we do love terrestrial radio and so i just got some data that that came in uh came in today actually on the 28th of august coming from edison research which has a uh, a rolling poll uh of sorts of of people who listen to audio called the share of ear and their newest study shows that still uh, am and fm radio terrestrial radio uh, still makes up the largest percentage of people's time that they spend with audio every day. Now, of course, this number has been going down. Um, right now, it's 42% of people's time in general. Uh, and this is Americans 18 plus, I believe. Um, 42% of all time spent with audio is with AM, FM radio. If we turn back the clock uh, six years to 2014, that percentage was 51%. 
So we are seeing a declining uh, share. Of course, a lot of this time is going to things like streaming radio, streaming audio, like a Pandora or a St- or a um, Spotify, or people's owned music. Podcasting is up to five percent at this point. So still a relatively small percentage amongst all Americans, um, though I do know that when we talk about people who consider themselves podcast listeners, the number is significantly higher. The other interesting trend here is that Edison tracks when people start listening to audio in the morning. And they've noticed that that has now changed with the coronavirus, with the pandemic. What happened to drive time? Well, drive time has changed. People now report starting their audio listening at 8.30 in the morning, whereas pre-COVID it was 7.15. And, and I can tell you from the podcasting side of things, since I work in podcasting, we've been tracking the trend as well. And we certainly have noticed that, you know, that early morning listen, that drive time listen has been going down. But then there's been a concomitant increase at other times of the day. And one of the things uh, at Stitcher, where I work, we've noticed a bump in, in, the, in the 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. time. And that's your local time, whoever the listener is, uh, that we call the new drive time. And it seems that people are listening during lunch. They're perhaps taking a break from their day um, and, and from their work day if they're working from home. Um, and, and we see a bump in listening then. Uh, but definitely, you know, a, a change in trends. People have not given up on radio and radio is sort of uh, we, they've noticed is bouncing back from kind of a real trough that happened immediately when we're talking around April, when the first uh, real stay at home orders uh, really started to set in. People have reorganized their schedule, reorganized their lives, and they're turning back to audio and they're turning back to podcasting, into radio, into streaming, you know, as, and, and maybe it, 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 it plays different functions in their lives. You know, uh, and and that maybe even though you may not be in the car as much or a car in the different days at different times, um, it's still good to have it there. So that's just some interesting data. I thought it would be it would be nice to share there. It's not really broken down by types of radio. We don't know about genre, category, things like this. But it's still the largest part of people's uh, audio consumption. Good old AM FM radio. And speaking of more. Uh, Terrestrial radio, AM, FM, you know, the, the question we get so often via email here, Radio Survivor, is how do I get a radio station? That You know, uh, you know, depends on the time, but sometimes we get multiple inquiries a month. How do I get a radio station? And generally speaking, most of the time, our answer is buy one. <laughs> find an existing radio station and find a few million dollars. Um, because and this is people who are interested in terrestrial radio. This is terrestrial radio. Yes, this is this is terrestrial only. Online radio is a different ball of wax. Yes, um, and this is because right now the way that the FCC issues licenses is during windows of time. They pick a, a certain period of time in which people can submit licenses for certain types of stations. Could be full power commercial stations, full power non commercial, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, AM or FM. And during that time, people submit their applications, they compete, uh, and then winners are chosen and they're awarded licenses. But these, these windows only come up every, every so often, uh, very rarely more frequently than once every five years, in fact. That's how infrequently these happen. And, and in part, this is also true because the, the radio dials in most cities and in most uh, metropolitan regions are pretty full. 
there's really not a lot of open frequencies left to 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 bid for uh and so that's also part of the reason why the the licensing opportunities are not so common but the reason i bring it up is because it looks like we're going to have opportunities for new full power non-commercial licenses and opportunities for new low power fm non-commercial licenses in the coming year or so and we know this because of written testimony that FCC uh, Chairman Ajit Pai gave to Congress. And he had some uh, members of Congress ask him, when, when will there be an opportunity for new stations? And he said, you know, it looks like it's coming up in the near future. People are, are generally interpreting that as uh, the next year, um, which is great news. But the thing we do really have to caveat here is is there's fewer and fewer opportunities left uh if you are in a major metroplex like new york san francisco la chicago houston um there's nary an open frequency there <laughs> that might be available for you to apply for uh so it it, it it is hard for us to say at this moment in time but specifically for a full power license this is a a radio station that broadcasts with uh, 250 or more watts um, there may, may be many cities where there really isn't an opportunity or it will only be an opportunity in, in what are often called rim shot areas, uh, a, a distant suburb where maybe your signal might be heard for a good portion of the metropolitan region, but isn't necessarily heard in the city center or isn't heard throughout the population center. Right. And, and often these are, are uh, suburbs that are kind of new suburbs, you know, little towns that have become suburbs because of the, the growing uh, metroplex that you might be a part of. And it's one of these things though, we can't really say because when you're applying for a full power license, it's actually up to the, the applicant to do their due diligence and figure out where a, where a station could go. So there's not, yeah, I was, I was searching this today, Paul, cause I was curious about that, especially since there could potentially be a low power FM window. I went on the FCC website to see if I could navigate their tool to find out if there was an open frequency near me and you have to know latitude and longitude. Well, so and that's it, for it low takes, power FM, which yeah. is comparatively easy. so i just want to make that very low power fm the fcc makes it actually quite easy that's part of the reason for its existence full power stations are several orders of magnitude more difficult and definitely require real engineering expertise because effectively you have to make the case to the fcc that you can put a station on that frequency in that place and that it won't interfere with other stations yeah it's yeah, such a bummer that you can't just look at a list and you know and pick and choose like oh it looks like there's an opportunity here. Well, when there when when the LPFM window opens, you know which we, which it looks like it will, there will be more data. Then we don't have it right now, right? So we don't really know, but it's likely that there probably will not be opportunities in a lot of major cities. That basically all of those licenses have been spoken for. And if we go back, the last time there was an opportunity for low power FM was 2013. And in cities like San Francisco and Los Angeles, there were 15 bidders in some cases for a single frequency, right? A single license that the FCC then had to sort out who is most qualified. There are specific rules for it. Um, There's a point system that you can get. And then in the event that you have ties, um, they basically hope that the 
that the folks who applied will work it out themselves. Well, often one way they work it out is through time sharing, where literally the station, that frequency is a different station on different hours of different days, uh, and they split it up. Um, so, but seeing that kind of, you know, the fact that there were, say, 15 applicants for a single frequency shows you the kind of outsized demand versus supply that you have in major cities. That said... Right. You go to like more rural areas and there's more opportunities. Yeah. And I was, you know, last time around, I think that there were, there were likely available frequencies in, in more distant places that people did not apply for. So that's what I'm kind of curious about is, you know, were there, yeah, were there opportunities that were just sort of left there that nobody took advantage of? Oh, certainly. Yes. And did something happen to that space? Um, Well, that's, that's the thing. It can go away. Yeah. Exactly. I think you've mentioned that, that, you know, what if a full power station comes in and, and then that space is sort of not available for low power FM. Um, yeah. There are also low power no FM stations that have given up their licenses that have turned them back in. Yeah. Yes. And so what we have to kind of think about is that, you know, one metaphor that isn't, that is not a bad metaphor is real estate, right? You could have a lot that's the size of a city block. And consider that a full power station. And you might cut that lot, you know, that full block into quarter lots or eighth lots. And those could be uh, translator stations, which are repeater stations that operate with up to about 250 watts of power. Or they could be low power FM stations. Maybe that's an eighth of a block. And uh, they can operate with 100 watts of power. But if a full power station comes and takes over the whole block... You, you obliterate basically these opportunities to fit in these tinier stations that can kind of be squeezed onto the dial. And it's likely that the um, full power uh, opportunity will happen before the low power FM opportunity. In part, that's because the last full power non-commercial uh, opportunity was in 2010, a full 10 years ago. So they'll get the first dibs. And and this is strictly in what's called the reserve band. So it's uh, from 88.1 FM all the way to 91.9 FM. So strictly non-commercial frequencies, which, you know, is not the whole dial. It's only a section of the FM dial. Um, and so likely it's people have an opportunity to apply for those first. And then that will close. And then sometime later, not sure how long, because it may take a while for that process to sort itself out. Um, the FCC would open up a non, uh, an LPFM window, which is, again, for non-commercial stations that are limited to 100 watts of power. And it's sort of what's left. And and there have been other licensing windows since that uh, period passed uh, for uh, the last LPFM window, which was 2013. And so it is it is definitely the case that some frequencies may no longer be eligible. And it's not necessarily yeah. the case that somebody took that specific frequency, but they may have taken an adjacent frequency that therefore makes that one no more, no longer viable because you can't have stations too close to each other on the dial. Right. Well, and low power FM stations can be all over the dial. So that's one, one little glimmer of hope is it seemed that a lot of the low power FM stations that, were licensed in the 2013 window were actually on that right side of the dial, like mm-hmm. squeezed in amid commercial stations. 
Yeah. So those those licenses could still be there, or some of them could still be there. And again, if if LPFMs has turned in their licenses, um, it is possible those frequencies might still uh, come up as available in in this next window, which could happen in say 2021 or 2022. The advice for anyone who thinks they may want a station is to start organizing now. Um, history shows you we don't always get a lot of advance notice, <laughs> and so uh, having your house in order having your ducks in a row is an important thing uh one of the most important things to understand is that your organization has to be an incorporated nonprofit. you don't have to be a fully recognized 501c3 which is a tax deductible charity and it's a federally tax deductible charity you just have to incorporate as a nonprofit in the state where you are and and the tricky part is you also you know your corporation has to be cited in the community where you plan to put up a station and, and the principles of your station, basically your board of directors, your officers have to reside in that same community. We're not going to get into the full ticky tacky details of it all. Uh, that's just sort of the gloss on it, but those are things uh, for you to keep in mind and that, um, you know, and that elements such as a organization's uh, tenure in the community can figure into the licensing process, into the points that you get uh, with regard to being awarded uh, a license over and above another uh, applicant. So things to keep in mind there as well. And that a longer standing organization uh, has a greater chance uh, of getting a license than one that's been around less time. But there's, again, many factors there. But ultimately, if you have an organization or you want to create one, now is the time to think about it. Yeah, and this includes college radio stations too. So educational institutions. Yes, that's correct. Fall in that category, so it's potentially an opportunity for college radio. Yeah, and 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 to, to, we are talking strictly about non-commercial stations. So it does have to be a nonprofit organization, uh, which includes it includes religious organizations, it includes uh, charities, uh, includes colleges or schools. Municipal organizations can can High qualify schools, as well. Elementary schools, yeah, but they can awesome. all qualify. So now is the time to start that organization, and we can't tell you when the the window will open yet, but it'll be it, it'll happen fast and furiously. Well, and, and it's is, not a bad it's not a bad uh, time to use the time prior to the window opening to start making radio right away because yeah. you can. You can put your radio station on the internet. You can podcast in lieu of the 24-hour broadcast schedule that you'll be responsible for when you get your station if you're successful. Uh, there's still plenty of time to make radio. That's tremendously good advice, Eric, actually. Um, and so, you know, I think we saw that there were a number of low-power FMs that were licensed um, in this last window in the 2013 period. Uh, many of them were existing online stations. Some of them were independent, uh, such as the Chicago Independent Radio Project, CHIRP. Um, some of them were associated with colleges or universities or schools, so they already had an online presence. But the advantage there, of course, which, what you're alluding to, is that when time comes on to turn on your, your transmitter, you're already experienced and, know, and ready to go. 
you know, I mean, certainly there are still, uh, you have engineering challenges. You have to actually build the transmitter, even if you already have a studio and site it and things like that. Um, and depending on where you live and, and your local codes, uh, sometimes that's a more, it turned out that was a more complex uh, uh, undertaking in a lot of major cities in particular than folks had anticipated back in that 2013 window. But nevertheless, yeah, you have opportunity to socialize the idea to get people excited. And if people can really hear what the station is going to sound like because you're online, uh, the Portland Radio Project in Portland, Oregon is another station that went from online to being a low power FM. Um, you know, it, it provides you with perhaps even a firmer basis of support, both in terms of listeners and obviously probably in terms of potential donors or, or folks who can provide material support. So that is really great advice that you point out there, Eric, that if you want to get, if you want to have a radio station because of podcasting, because of internet radio, like there's an opportunity now and, and organizing yourself in that way can maybe give you a leg up for having a, you know, a, a fully terrestrial AMF, I'm um, sorry, a fully terrestrial FM signal. The other thing I'll note is one of the things that puts people off of starting online stations at this moment in time is that uh, you have to start making these royalty payments for, for in exchange for playing music. The royalty payments are significantly lower if you're associated with, with a nonprofit or if you're associated with a school or university. So if you want to start off on that nonprofit foot, uh, you're, you actually are in a much more advantageous place, even with an online station, um, in addition to being in an advantageous place with having a fully terrestrial station. So those are, those are some things to keep in mind, and we'll certainly cover more as, as we learn more. Here at Radio Survivor, where we are here for the love of radio and sound. Uh, we, we, we're, we're catching up on kind of almost a full summer's worth of, of radio news, um, especially radio news that touches uh, non-commercial radio, uh, community radio, public radio, college radio, high school radio, uh, and, and podcasting and all sorts of really communitarian focused uh, audio audio media of all kinds. It was such a we really need to find a, a pithy way to define it because I'm doing a terrible job. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking it's too many sound. words. Yeah, sound. Yeah, it's sound. We'll work on that. But there's another form of radio that the clock may is ticking on right now. Um, and this is something we've talked about over the years here on the podcast and we've covered it at radiosurvivor.com. It has and the best name ever, I have to yes, say. Yes, the name coined is the Franken-FM. And, you know, of course, Franken conjures up Frankenstein of something sort of cobbled together. And that's because these are actually TV stations that happen to be heard way at the bottom end, left end of the FM dial at about 87.7 FM, which right. is receivable and on most radios. And when you say television stations, Paul, you're referring to analog TV stations. Yes, we're talking about real analog television stations, some of the few that still exist, because as most of us who went through 2009 know, um, most television stations are digital now. And, you know, in 2009, it meant that many of us had to buy a special converter box uh, for our old analog TVs. And now most people have bought, you know, a digital flat screen television in the intervening 11 years. But there's still uh, a class of television stations out there broadcasting in analog, which is receivable on most TVs still. 
Uh, they're called low power television stations. Sounds a lot like low power FM, except that they're not non-commercial. They're not necessarily community or public television stations. Uh, they're simply just lower powered. And they were, they were originally designed basically to make it easier for, for folks to get on, on the air in the same way as low power FM, although television stations are far more expensive than radio. They have been sort of grandfathered over the course of the last 11 years to allow to, to, to still broadcast an analog and not make that mandatory digital conversion. And there's been multiple periods in this 11 years where the FCC has said, okay, now, now the deadline's really coming. At one point it was 2015. It got pushed and it got pushed. Um, so now the deadline is July 31st of 2021. This is a time when all analog uh, low-power television stations have to end that analog signal and begin a digital signal. And many have. Many have already gone to digital. There are a lot of advantages to going to digital. But the one advantage to being analog is for the subsection of stations that operate on channel six, because that's on the left end of the FM dial. And this is a phenomenon. Maybe some people would have, you might've even discovered accidentally yourself 15, 20 years ago. And that you might've heard your local channel six television station on your radio. and wondered what's up with that. And it's the fact that in terms of the spectrum, the, that analog TV spectrum butts up against the FM spectrum. Right. But well, Paul, because, the reason- yeah, the reason why you care about this stuff here on Radio Survivor is because there are, in fact, a handful of television stations that are intentionally broadcasting radio content as their primary form of uh, transmission. That's their business model. Yeah, exactly. I've counted 31 that I, that I can identify in the United States, which is more than we're doing so in 2009. So they clearly saw that their fortunes as television stations, especially analog were going down, but their fortunes as radio stations were going up. And so some uh, flipped over their licenses. One of the most famous ones is called MeTV FM in Chicago, which is so popular that it actually shows up in, in ratings, which is, which is pretty unusual. Um, but there are stations all over the country. Many of them uh, broadcast to language minorities. There's a lot of uh, Spanish language stations. A lot of the programming is syndicated and not necessarily original, although there are a handful of stations uh, that originate original programming that is, uh, in some cases, a little different than what you see in commercial radio. Others operate pretty much like another commercial radio station would, and there's not a lot of difference. They kind of run the gamut, but it looks like the, the clock may be ticking. And the FCC has asked the question for public comment, what should we do about these stations? And, and, and proposed such options is perhaps they just get to stay. Proposed options that maybe they can, uh, pro- that they can you know, uh, uh, propose to stay, meaning it would be on more of a case-by-case basis. Is even asked, well, if we were to kind of grandfather in these stations, should we open up the opportunity for anyone, right? So rather than it being this kind of um, accident of history, uh, should perhaps that frequency anywhere in the U.S. should they open it up to new entrants, or well, even know, should they be allowed to stay di- go digital and infl- and keep their analog signal as well? There, you know, over the years there were a very small number of Class D FM radio stations that were licensed to eighty-seven point seven or eighty-seven point nine FM. So I'm curious about that. Were they on eighty-seven point seven? I think they were only mm-hmm. on eighty-seven point nine. I don't. I, I don't well, think they were ever yeah, maybe on eighty-seven point seven. 
Must have been 87.9. Yeah. There was one in the Bay Area that was 87.9. And a Class D so, station was the original low-power FM, which existed from the uh, 1940s through to uh, as an official service in 1978, which permitted someone to broadcast with 10 watts of power. So a tenth of the power of current low-power FM stations. Um, and, and yes, only Class Ds and a certain number of experimental stations were ever allowed to be on 87.9. And you would never have had uh, a Channel 6 television station and an 87.9 in the same community because they would interfere with each other. So those 87.9s are only in communities where there is no Channel 6 television station. Ah, interesting. And so those are just completely... So what, what's the story with 87.9? That's completely off the table for an FM radio license? Correct. Yeah, that is currently not part of the assigned band. You're not assigned signals there. So you have a few grandfather stations. Uh, the Class D station, 10-watt stations, when the service was discontinued in 1978, uh, stations were given an opportunity, a window, to upgrade their power and go to full power, which at that time would have been 250 watts or more. Many did. Um, some went off the air in the intervening years. Uh, the remaining class D stations, 10 watt stations are considered secondary services, which basically means if a bigger guy comes along and wants to your frequency or is going to be near your frequency and it's going to kick you off the air, you lose. <laughs> so then that was, you know, why those stations were mostly given the opportunity to upgrade to full power licenses. And so there's just, I don't, I don't know the number offhand, but there's only a handful of those uh, of those legacy class D stations still in operation. One is here in Portland, Oregon. It's currently used by X-Ray, which is a community radio station here, um, which took over the license uh, that was owned by Reed College, which, which had had it for, for decades prior. They were getting ready to uh, turn the license back into the FCC. Uh, and through the action of community members here in Portland, um, they were able to find a way to transfer it to a nonprofit to run it as a community radio station. Yeah. But so do you think exception. there's ever the possibility the FCC would allow people to apply for 87.9 for low power FM since stations have existed on that? And, and since 87.7, you're saying may that may go by the wayside if we no longer have channel six. People proposed it to the, to the FCC with the argument that the only reason that that's, that's not a viable frequency in many cases is because of protecting Channel 6 television. Um, people have proposed it. It's probably, you know, and I don't know offhand, I don't have a remote idea of how many communities where that frequency would be viable because probably in a lot of communities uh, where there isn't a Channel 6, there's probably an 88.1 FM. And you would not easily cite a station so close, right? So, th so the number of actual new low-power FM stations that opening up 87.9 would enable is probably small. It's probably limited. But I know, I know that folks have actually have petitioned the F FCC for just that. And, and um, you know, we'll, we'll have to see. And we'll have to see, you know, it still is unclear yet if – these uh, Franken-FMs that operate Channel 6 analog low-power television stations that you can hear on your FM dial, um, it's still unclear yet whether they're going to be kicked off. 
I know that certainly they are still working with and petitioning the FCC, hoping to find some sort of of solution that might at the very least grandfather in the ones that are that are extant or with a possible solution that the television signal goes digital and they're still allowed one kind of legacy FM uh essentially FM analog signal. Um, certainly uh, NPR opposes it. A lot of uh, community radio groups oppose it um, because they feel like it's, it's an unfair advantage on the one hand uh, that wasn't really intended to be there. And two, uh, these stations, many of them, if not most of them operate as commercial stations in a part of the dial that is otherwise seems, you know, reserved for, uh, and for non-commercial operation, you can't put a commercial radio station at 87.9 or 88.1. And so it would be a special kind of exception up to now that 87.7 is not considered part of the FM dial It's considered part of the television spectrum, analog television spectrum. So there's been, even though this is kind of a, a, a technical anomaly, right? Um, it's permissible, but it was never intended to really be exploited in this way. So we'll we'll certainly learn more as as we approach July thirty first uh, of twenty twenty one. And uh, turning our attention to the internet radio arena, we have uh, some sad news um, to bring you. The, it's the uh, news of the closure of a service called Radio Free America. Now, Jennifer, you're quite familiar with Radio Free America. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Oh well, it's had many many different phases, but the most recent one is, you know, serving as a way for college and community radio stations to archive two weeks of programming on the internet. So this has been a tool, a free tool that stations have been using so that listeners can access their shows for the past two weeks. So with them closing, that's definitely sad news for these stations that have relied on this outside service to archive their content. Yeah. It's basically allowed stations to be on demand, right? It's allowed a station to say, if you missed your favorite show last week, just go to our website or to radio free America and you can catch it. And, and that two week limit is a statutory limit um, in the uh, digital millennium copyright act. Um, it specifies that you can uh, that a station is supposed to only keep two two weeks worth of archives online. Um, it's back from the days in which the record companies were panicking that somehow people were going to be uh, ripping uh, online radio streams instead of buying music, uh, which right. doesn't so, really seem to have ever materialized. <laughs> so some radio stations have their own infrastructure for for creating a two week archive and other stations do not. So the service was great for stations that didn't have that ability. Um, so I know people have been scrambling, uh, because this, the service radio free America just ended here in mid August of 2020. So I saw reports online of stations, you know, people who are furiously uploading, uploading shows to Mixcloud, which is a place where some people keep their archives so it'll be interesting. And, and there are also rumors of, of some other companies who might be trying to figure out solutions um, to help out these community and college radio stations who might not know what to do in terms of archiving. Um, I know I've found some archives on archive.org. So, you know, that's that's a place maybe to take a look. Um, yeah, archiving but- talk programming is unproblematic. 
comparatively speaking, you can essentially make it a podcast, really. Um, and because uh, as long as you're not using any uh, music for which you don't have like full permission from the label, the artist, the rights holders, etc., in it, um, you really don't have any problems. Once you have music in your programming, now uh, you have to deal with the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. You have to deal with uh, the various rights holders like ASCAP, BMI, Sound Exchange, who all want a little piece, who all require royalties to be paid on the music that you that you stream online or make available for on-demand streaming in particular. Uh, the royalty rates are different for a live stream, such as what most probably most college or community radio stations have, versus on-demand. If we think about Spotify or uh, Pandora or iHeartRadio as versions of, of some on-demand types of streaming, uh, those rates are higher. And so there's that little kind of clause that allows uh, your community radio station to have those two weeks of on-demand uh, as gratis, basically, as part of their live stream. But as soon as you want to have a, a deeper catalog, potentially more royalties are invoked. And that's that's just a simplification of, of kind of the way the rules are. And it's unfortunate, you know, I mean, certainly the folks behind Radio Free America were trying to do a good thing, right? We're, we're trying to provide... Uh, greater access, I think, uh, online to community and college radio, and we're really in love with the spirit of it. Uh, we talked to Kenneth Pushkin, uh, one of the founders of Radio Free America, back on episode 125, uh, about two years, a little more than two years ago. Uh, we'll, we'll put a link to our show notes there at radiosurvivor.com slash podcast, and they told us about what they were doing and why. But it seems like ultimately they never really found a model for funding it. You know, I mean, certainly uh, there are things like advertising, which could be displayed online, or you could have had people have memberships or something. But ultimately, um, there really wasn't a model to help fund it, and they and they ran out of money. And it, it, it's sort of a reminder to all of us here that you know, on the internet, as we all live and breathe, it seems you know, free services come and go, and. Certainly, it can be wonderful to use a free service, whether it's something like a Radio Free America or Mixcloud, which is a UK-based service, uh, which allows uh, DJs or radio stations to post uh, their mixes or their shows online for free for people to listen to, and they cover the royalties needed uh, for that to happen in addition to the uh, costs associated with the storage and the streaming. But with a free service, you know, you don't have a lot of guarantees. You don't really have a service level agreement as it's known. Um, and so you don't know uh, how long it'll be around for, though. You certainly hope it w- <laughs> these things will be around a long time. I'm certainly not somebody who is wishing for any of these services ever to fail. I think the internet is richer. Our lives are richer for them to exist, but it's always a hazard. And, and therefore, you know, for a station, if you're able to uh, afford the costs associated with hosting your own content online, you know, you do have that greater guarantee that, it, that, that there's some persistence at least as long as your station is able, able to afford it. And certainly regardless of wherever you're, you're hosting your, uh, your archive of shows, um, keep a copy, <laughs> which itself can be its own expense. It, you know, bytes add up, bits add up, gigabytes add up, you know, and, and, you know, one of the nice things about Radio Free America is that it was very automated, that you basically submitted to them 
your stream and your schedule. And Radio Free America did all the hard work of splitting it up into the individual shows, associating it with the with with us with the appropriate titles or DJ names and things like this, and the times, and making it very accessible. There was a lot of nice little magic that happened on their end. Whereas a station wants to take advantage of something like a Mixcloud, or if you were to have maybe a SoundCloud subscription, folks are going to have to do a lot more of that work manually, or you'll have to develop your own automated solution to take care of that work for for you to uh, split it up and upload the shows and things like this. It's a lot less automatic. And I, and I do believe I understand there are, you know, uh, services out there uh, that, you know, are available for a fee that will do that for you. So it's not as if that does not exist. Uh, and there are some out there. I know the national federation of community broadcasters and probably I'm sure college broadcasters Inc have those resources available to their members. If you're a community or college station, they can certainly help you out. But as a listener, there's a real loss to Radio Free America, too, because it was just this one-stop shop where you could go and browse so much amazing college and community radio content, right? It just, it, it, it was, uh, you know, you were spoiled by the variety and the and the um, depth. And, and certainly when, when you wanted to celebrate, like, College Radio Day or National Radio Day and find just one way to kind of, to be able to plunge in really easily, uh, Radio Free America was a great source. That's right, because it served as a portal where you could go and explore a bunch of shows. So that's too bad. Again, archive.org, you could go and, and look at you know their old homepage and explore some of those same stations. And sometimes stations have uploaded air checks and archives. It's a lot, a lot more difficult to navigate. <laughs> you got to do a lot more searching and, and things are a lot more chaotic. Uh, which is something which uh, a recent guest of ours uh, uh, pointed out uh, as compared to, say, UbuWeb, which is very well organized, um, you know, that uh, archive.org, while it can be tremendously more comprehensive, it is a lot more chaotic and, and there isn't necessarily a curator there helping to organize things. They're more of hoovering it up, but it also means there's a good chance that something might be there. It, it right. Is, it is, is a trade off there. So it definitely, we, we, we say rest in peace to Radio Free America. Next, we have kind of a fun shortwave uh, story here. Um, we only talk about shortwave radio here and there in on Radio Survivor. Uh, that's in part because um, there is there aren't a lot of shortwave radio stations originating from the U.S., a very large percentage of them are are really religious broadcasters, which are, um, which are basically broadcasting ministry to the world, and it's really what their their purpose is for. And it's not particularly uh, related to much of what we talk about here on Radio Survivor. Although Jennifer, at one point, you know, you were you were very much was, uh, attuned to the deep. story of Harold camping. A uh, a televan- uh, televangelist, a radio evangelist, who was prophesizing the end of the world. Right, and they had a big family radio had a big shortwave operation, I think, out of Florida, and they gave up that signal a number of years ago. Um, so yeah, I was following that story, and then I mean, we also talked to people. We've talked to people on the show, like Thomas Witherspoon, who who write about shortwave. And, oh yeah. Um, you Both know, from an amateur radio perspective and from a broadcast perspective, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely an active community of shortwave listeners. Uh, I, I think all of us here have a fascination with number stations that 
Oh, yeah. That happened on shortwave, these spy stations. I listen so, to shortwave here and there. You know, a lot, the thing is, is that a lot of international broadcasters don't actually direct signals to the United States anymore, North America, because they don't perceive that people are listening and that they were more likely to listen to internet radio. Uh, so there's much less to listen to than there used to be um, even a decade ago. But uh, it looks like one operation, uh, which is a secular operation in the United States called WBCQ, the planet is getting bigger because they'll be taking over a station called uh, World Harvest Radio, uh, which is based in South Carolina. Um, in, in, in Family Broadcasting Corporation is not Family Radio, which was the Harold Camping operation. I know, it's so confusing. Similar but they're names. selling, uh, Family Broadcasting Corporation is selling their WHRI to Alan Weiner. And Alan's a very colorful guy. Um, the planet's a very colorful station. Radio Survivor was once uh, broadcast on on the planet on WBCQ thanks to uh, one of our listeners, known as the Dude, who decided to sponsor an episode of Radio Survivor onto uh, the planet because he felt like it, it, it deserved a wider global uh, distribution. Much of uh, the programming on WBCQ and a lot of shortwave stations is least time. So anyone can can uh, lease some time on WBCQ to air their shows. Uh, therefore, the range of programming is fascinating. <laughs> A lot of the type of programming that might have been on Border Blasters, uh, in, you know, in, in AM radio, in the glory days of AM radio, is the type of programming you sometimes hear uh, that is sponsored onto or paid for on WBCQ. But Alan also runs his own shows. There's some music shows. It's, it's quite a wide variety. But Alan uh, Weiner was a pirate, and he operated something called uh, Radio New York International, uh, where in the early 80s, he, he got a ship and started an AM radio station in international waters, uh, which eventually was shut down by the FCC, who had to get a boat and come all the way out to, to waters off the coast of Long Island, New York. But, uh, he has his history and he, and it's, 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 it goes deep into, into really his young adulthood, uh, running pirate radio stations in New York state, but eventually, uh, made good with the FCC and was able to purchase, uh, and able to get a license for shortwave, uh, which he operates, um, I believe out of, out of Maine, and as well as a cluster, now he has a cluster of broadcast stations up there as well. So he's going to be growing the footprint of WBCQ, the planet. And over the years, uh, various folks have encouraged us to put Radio Survivor on sure. uh, the planet because it's full of – because the listenership is definitely the kind of shortwave radio nerd that, that we, we identify with. Um, and, it, and if it were free, I think we'd do it. <laughs> I'll have for an answer. We can say that on yeah. the podcast. But, I, think, uh, I think I just want to throw in here things I've learned about shortwave, uh, you know, because it was not something I cared about prior to being a producer of this here radio program, or it just it was not on my radar, as it were. And uh, I think that shortwave, you know, we know that it's. Uh, waning in 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 utility or popularity on the planet right now because of the the growing prominence of the internet. But I think that's one of its main selling points at this stage in the 21st century is that um, 
that the infrastructure of the internet, which has been extremely dependable up to this moment, is not necessarily a given. Uh, you know, we know that uh, during uh, the hurricanes that hit New York in uh, the 21st century that knocked parts of the internet off. Uh, well, people were offline it, very recently, in fact, in, in, in the New York area due to power outages uh, brought right. on by, by a recent storm, right? And it's certainly there are and, folks uh, in the Gulf uh, Coast right now who are without power and internet, but, but could still have yeah. uh, communication via radio. And Eric, and we're in places where communication on the internet is blocked. I mean, and that's one of the reasons that various agencies have used shortwave to get through, you know, to countries where people might not have freedom, free access to the internet or the press. Right. Uh, turning on your shortwave radio is an untraceable act of of uh, communication. Nobody, nobody on the planet knows that you switched your shortwave radio on. Uh, to listen to it. It's untrackable. It's as, as long as you turn off your Alexa speaker and your Google Home speaker. <laughs> right. Yeah, as long as you don't tweet that you're turning on your shortwave radio. Uh, it's, it's a private act. Yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> as long as you've, you're, you're, as long as you've uh, turned off your cell phone, unplugged all your smart speakers, <laughs> and closed all your computers. <laughs> Not to say that I'm paranoid. Um but uh, but even so, not joking so much. You're entirely correct, Eric. That that it is still one of the more uh, most kind of open uh, communications media. You know, in addition to the fact that uh, folks who are amateur radio operators are are a very vital linkage in in first response, especially to natural disasters and emergencies. Uh, they are there are uh, amateur radio groups, you know, in pretty much in every country of the world, in every region of the United States, who assist with uh, wildfire management, who assist with uh, hurricanes, with storms, with nearly everything, uh, keeping lines of communication open outside of the out of the internet and cell infrastructure, uh, because it, it's known to be reliable and has been for a hundred and plus years. So that's why we. Continue to pay attention. It'll be interesting to see. Um, I don't. I, I try to listen to the planet on the radio sometimes on, on shortwave radio. Um, I don't have a, a tremendously great setup here in Portland, Oregon, yeah. on the other side you of the country. You need a tall antenna, right? You need a tall antenna. Yeah, you need a good antenna. <laughs> Let's just say you just yeah. need a good antenna, um, and maybe a better receiver than what I have. But there are times when I'm able to tune it in, and I wonder um, uh, with expanding with the purchase of WHRI. Um, if that'll uh, give him a more prominent footprint, if maybe that the that signal will be more receivable here in in the, the northwest of the United States, uh, be interesting to see. Although formally speaking, the interesting thing about shortwave broadcasting in the United States, at least, is that uh, as a formal part of your licensure, you're actually supposed to be orienting your broadcast to, to an international community. It's not actually officially a domestic service. So it's really for an international service, but you know, in effect, no one's really policing that. But that's just a, a certain vagary there of the uh, of, of the shortwave band. Well, we've run through the news that I had <laughs> that we've compiled here to share with everybody. Uh, we hope uh, something was of interest. I think there's a lot of you know to hear that there's possibly new low power FM or new non-commercial license opportunities is always great news. I'm always really, really glad to hear that. Um, 
even if, even if the, there probably will not be the type of opportunity we had in 2013 for the, for the which which I think will continue to stand in time as the greatest expansion of community radio in history until unless uh, a nation like uh, China or Russia or India decide maybe to uh, to create something on par with low power FM and blow the U.S. out of the water in terms of its uh, dominance. I think um, that is likely still to stand as the greatest uh, flowering of community radio in history. But it was an an amazing time leading up to it, too. The excitement, the energy in the air, so to speak, you know, as people were preparing their ideas for their stations, preparing for, you know, the imminent opening of the licensing window. So it would be exciting to have another period like that where – you have this energy surrounding um, the possibility, all the possibilities uh, with having new radio stations. In our yeah, pre-podcast I, I days, was... we covered it week to week, week to yeah. week, publishing who was applying, who got licenses, where there were uh, where people were duking it out. It was uh, uh, it, it was it was really kind of a roller coaster and a lot of fun. And one of my favorite stories to come out of that era is just the notion of um, the timeshare aspect where the competing nonprofits would be, you know, they you could see them as competing and who was going to get a station and who wasn't. But there also was this amazing opportunity for collaboration and um, sort of joining forces that we know uh, came to fruition in the United States, That that some people... Uh, used this opportunity to create radio stations together when that was not the original plan. And uh, Radio Survivor airs on one of those stations in San Francisco where where, um, where collaboration between different groups you know, that represent different constituencies and have different missions. Uh, I think it's a really cool way to, to build a radio station, to have, have uh, that kind of coming together around, around a broadcast signal. Yeah, you're talking about San Francisco Public Press, and they share a frequency with San Francisco Community Radio. So some former college radio folks from KUSF, along with a nonprofit local newspaper, are sharing a frequency in San Francisco, which is a really interesting marriage, actually, to have this public interest, news-oriented material part of the day, and then than mostly music programming the rest of the day. Well, that sort of yeah. you know, mirrors just, a lot of community stations, though, right? Yeah. Exactly. I'm excited about you know, how that relationship will uh, develop, right? As, a, as, as the decades roll on, I see it as a real strength. Uh, you, know, it's a, you, know, you can imagine, I've, I haven't been in the building right in San Francisco, but you can imagine a lot of walls breaking down as the years go by. And, you well, know, it's a, a, they're in different buildings, <laughs> right? Exactly, but but at but at I can see how you know a generation from now uh, a radio station like that still being on the air. Sort of, it's a really unique foundation uh, for for them how how they started out on the air. Well, and and, uh, and I think I, there are a lot of interesting stories like that. Like in Denver, there was a public access station. And a hackerspace that teamed up and, you know, you could see how they had aspects of both places, their synergies. Um, And in a number of these types of stations, I've seen maybe one has experience um, as a nonprofit and as 
doing fundraising, which is the case with San Francisco Public Press. Um, and so sometimes like they balance – the partners end up balancing each other out with maybe one has radio skills and technical skills and the other has fundraising skills. So it it, it has been interesting to see how these stations have worked together. I believe the, the uh, I believe that station in Denver though is no longer a timeshare. I know. Uh, well, I, that's, I, the, that's the third version of this story is that we know we you know things Paul have and changed. I are, uh, familiar with the timeshare station in Portland, Oregon, where one half of the nonprofits that were that were um, running that station bowed out. But because of this unique relationship, the the second half was able to take on the the frequency and keep the station on the air. It's kind so of an insurance policy a, in a way, right? Because yeah, a lot of all, times these are small nonprofits that, you know, may have precarious financial grounding, uh, as many nonprofits do, never mind small businesses, right? And uh, having someone who can step in and take over the frequency without any kind of, without a lot of major paperwork or, uh, or working with the FCC uh, is, is a bit of an advantage. Yeah, and things changed in, in various – like in Denver, they were competing initially, but then they ended up teaming together to bring the station to the air. So so these collaborations have happened uh, – you know, stations have come together at various points in the process. Some have gone on to be timeshares. Others have decided to just work together, you know, with one license holder being the main license holder rather than a timeshare. Yeah, absolutely. Um but you know, part of the thing to keep in mind is that these timeshare agreements, right? You know, uh, the FCC likes it best when you work it out yourself. <laughs> and so, when you start seeing people apply, it's good to know who they are. You're not supposed to uh, sort of collude, but it's good to uh, it's good to know who they are and good to uh, keep that in mind as as you move through the process. And certainly, I think you know, the piece of advice we've often given, we sort of set up that whole section with uh, the fact that people constantly email us saying, how do I get a radio station? But a piece of advice we often give is, where do you live? There's probably a low-power FM college or community station in your area that probably could use volunteers and probably could use some help, right? That, 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 and so there may be an opportunity for you to broadcast. You don't have to ha- own your own station. On top of the fact that I think people often misunderstand it and think I can have my low power FM, like Paul's low power FM, right? And that's not really the way it works. You really have to have, you know, a, a nonprofit community organization, which is, you know, sort of therefore not just one person's radio station, you know, in the same way that you could ostensibly own your own commercial radio station, although it isn't really too common anymore, um, and but has been in the past. And that well, really is pe- a collective endeavor, you know. It has to be by by the rules of the service. I think some people also underestimate the amount of content that they need to run a, a radio station twenty four seven. One hundred sixty eight hours a week. <laughs> yeah, so so it's great advice to seek out a show somewhere before you, uh, you know, have the grand plans of having an entire radio station. You know, unless well, this is something you've done before and you know what you're getting into. And, um, and then funding it, right? Because you could say, okay, fine, I'll I'll get an automation system and load it up with the music I like, right? I think my music taste is great. I'll you know I'll just produce 168 hours of that on automation. That's great. How are you going to fund it? Who's going to be willing to to contribute towards it? You know that you know that one of the advantages again of a community radio station of all of all types and low power FM of all types is that is a diversified 
support base of listeners uh, and and broadcasters who can all contribute to the the maintenance and upkeep that's required, you know, from electricity to rent to other factors, right? And that, um, you know, your local community uh, housing association, your local uh, uh, township board, or or or, or uh, you know, your local uh, community. Uh, your local zoning uh, officials may not take too kindly to you putting up an antenna in your backyard to broadcast low power FM as well. You know, it, it may not be as simple as that, uh, that there's a lot more to consider uh, than I can just have my radio station. And so, you know, trying out radio in all its different forms, whether online or trying your hand uh, at a local non-commercial station that, that takes volunteers can be a great way to, uh, to, to get the ball rolling. It may be all you need. It may be all your community needs as well. Hey, guys, I just wanted to let listeners of the podcast know that uh, we've been on a real hot streak the last, uh, you know, this summer, summer of 2020. Uh, I'm just extremely proud of the guests that we've had on Radio Survivor. And there's a there's probably a good chance that if you're listening to this portion of the podcast that you heard some of those interviews. But uh, just in case you haven't, it's just it's been a real good couple of months of of guests to radio survivor um and i would encourage everyone to check out the last 10 well, episodes so, or well, so well in particular let's 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 put specifics down let's tease people sure. with, with actualities well um yeah i've been very happy with uh, uh going back going back let's say to uh, our geek of the week episode uh on july 21st uh, episode number 255 we interviewed uh carl malamud who um uh, he effectively well, had the first internet talk radio show and what what uh at least as far as the uh u.s patent office uh, is concerned is the er podcast yeah. <laughs> in 1993 nice, you know uh I'm gonna. I should re-listen to it because it's maybe now it's been a month or two since I heard it. But I think, and then that that episode pairs really well with the um, with the Ubu Web episode of Radio Survivor, in which we talking to a poet Kenneth, Gen- Goldsmith, Kenneth Goldsmith, yeah, who who really uh, because you know Kenneth Kenneth founded a website in 1996 that he continues to work on on an ongoing nightly basis, and it's real. Um, it's real nice because we here at Radio Survivor certainly, you know, there there are things that are wonderful about the internet in the year 2020, but there are things that we miss about what the internet was in 1996. And so it was a real pleasure, you know, to to talk to someone who's kept their website going all these years, who hand codes his HTML website without a cookie, without uh, without a Facebook page. And, and it's if, full, uh, chock full of avant-garde audio, visual right. Uh, textual and motion picture art, and then pair that interview with um, with John Cannonberg, who has a museum dedicated to the love of the MP3. You, uh, well, dedicated Jennifer, to you to, to portable audio. Yeah, the you museum guys, of portable you guys, audio uh, conducted that interview, and that was uh, what a I want I want my turn. To talk to to John Cannon. Well, you can make an appointment with him. Yeah, he will, exactly. You can have your own personal tour of his of his museum, which yeah. exists as a printed catalog and audio files on a uh, iPhone four. 
So that's yeah, just- and, and during the pandemic, you can book a visit with him, a remote visit with him, and he'll take yeah. you through the museum. So I am, I'm looking forward to booking a tour, actually, as well. I mean, and that's just some of what Radio Survivor's been doing. I think, uh, you know, that's, uh, it's just been a good, it's been a good run, and I'm proud of the work. Yes, uh, please do check out uh, our archives here. If you haven't had a chance to subscribe to the podcast, which, you know, is free. It just means that you, in your podcast app of choice, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, uh, Stitcher, uh, Overcast, uh, you just say favorite it. Let's download that every week so you never, ever miss an episode. And please tell tell a radio friend. We'd love it if you could help spread the word, spread the word on public, on, on public media, spread the word on social media, uh, however you like um, as well. Let us know what you think. We always love comments to get feedback. Uh, drop us a line podcast at radiosurvivor.com. We really do read our emails and we really do answer them. We love to ha- keep that dialogue going. And, and certainly uh, some of our interviews and our topics happen because of people who've gotten in touch. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, most recently of uh, Sonia Robles, who uh, is a uh, professor of, of history, who uh, r- wrote a book about uh, radio on the northern border of Mexico saw one of my blog posts about a mystery station, Mexican station I heard on the AM radio uh, thousands of miles away from me uh, right in the uh, Tijuana, Mexico area and responded and then said, you know, and just by the way, I wrote this whole book on this. <laughs> right? Radio I know. Maybe you'd radio like to have me on and we couldn't say with, yes fast enough. Radio and so, Survivor really lucked out with uh, finding two academic experts on border radio uh having them both drop into our lap and create two of uh, yeah that's right my they both uh, of... volunteered themselves so yeah, and they were both experts, uh, unlike a lot uh, of folks we're happy experts. to have you volunteer we'd love we'd love to hear from you if you have something to share so please drop us at line podcast at radiosurvivor.com and hey you know we haven't probably mentioned our patreon in a while but this is one way we help uh pay those hosting bills um, and have some resources available to keep the show going. Um, as anyone who's produced a radio show or podcast for a long time knows, um, it takes time, it takes effort, and it, and it takes a little bit of money. So if you can contribute as little as a dollar a month, uh, that really helps us predict our expenses and keep this going. And every so often, if you give us your uh, postal address, um, you receive a little something nice from us in the mail just as a way of saying thank you. So go to patreon.com slash radio survivor to help us keep doing what it is we do. Well, I guess we've, we've come to the end of the podcast here. Thank you so much for uh, sticking around uh, a few minutes past our usual uh, 58 minute end time for the radio broadcast and, and giving yeah. us opportunity to stretch out a little bit this week. Then we exactly. Well, this is the first time that we've had the three of us on together in quite a while too. So it's nice to have That's all funny. three of us in, together again. You guys are in my headphones almost every day. So <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't notice. Well, wonderful. Well, thanks a lot, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.